Would you remain standing with me, if you will, and let's declare our faith together in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Before I get into the message this morning, I want to say thank you to all who participated in the 6K Walk for Water yesterday, to Rebecca Strunks for her leadership and for all the teams that uh, supported her, served with her, um, all those who walked, and uh, we, we just had a great time yesterday morning together uh, out walking the neighborhood. Rebecca told me at the close of the first service today that, you know, we started out with the goal of raising money to provide water for 75 people. Uh, when it was all said and done, uh, as of this morning, she looked and we've raised enough money to provide uh, water for 298. Wow. So, awesome. And so your small donation could get us to 300. Just a thought. Well, this morning we've come to the line in the Apostles' Creed which reads, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I want to see a show of hands this morning. How many of you went to the store earlier this month and bought for someone you love, someone who's very special in your life, someone who means the world to you, a greeting card for Ascension Day? Ascension Day? I'll wait. Anybody? I don't see any hands. <laughs> well, of course you didn't. <laughs> because you can't find an Ascension Day card anywhere. You, you can't even go to Hallmark and find one. Mark Brinkman was here the first hour. He worked for Hallmark. I told him to get on that, remedy the problem. Well, why is it? Because hardly anyone even knows it exists. And for those who do know it exists, they never think about it, right? In reality, the Ascension of Jesus into heaven is the least considered element of the entire gospel message. We don't celebrate Ascension Day. We're not aware of it. By the way, it was 10 days ago, May 13th, and now you know. So don't mess up and let your family down next year. If you want to mark your calendar, it's always 39 days after Easter. Ascension Day is the 40th day of Easter. And yes, there really is such a thing as a 40th day of Easter. So we don't celebrate Ascension Day. Christmas, check, right? Palm Sunday, check. Good Friday, check. Easter, of course. Ascension Day, Nope. And yet, without the ascension, the story of the gospel is incomplete. The focus of the ascension is no longer on a bloody, distressed Christ, but rather on a kingly Christ, a reigning Christ, who is now seated at the Father's side. In his ascension into heaven, Jesus exchanged a crown of thorns and the humiliation of the cross for 
a royal diadem, an exaltation to a heavenly throne at the right hand of God. And again, before we get too heavy into the meaning of the ascension, let's take a few minutes to simply unfold the story of his ascension, which is found in the Gospels of Mark and Luke and in the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Neither Matthew nor John include an account of the ascension. Matthew concludes his Gospels, or his Gospel just moments before the ascension with Jesus issuing to, to his disciples what we now call the Great Commission, and which we will visit just a little later. John concludes with an interaction between himself and Jesus and Peter and an exclamation about all the things that Jesus did while he was on earth. But Mark, in the 16th chapter of his gospel, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there, has Jesus issuing to the disciples a different version of the Great Commission than the one in Matthew 28. And then with the greatest of brevity, he writes at verse 19, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. He was taken up and he sat down. More specifically, he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. The Apostles' Creed tells us actually only what Mark tells us. But it's Luke that provides us with the greatest detail about this important moment that marks both the end of the beginning of the gospel and what we might call the beginning of the end of the gospel in terms of its outworking in and through the church. Now, you may recall in the opening of the gospel that bears his name, Luke set forth his goal and his purpose in writing, also his method. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I noticed that his goal was to compile a narrative, to write an orderly account with the assistance of eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, which I take to be the apostles themselves, and those who have received also the, the message. His larger purpose was to provide this Theophilus with a trustworthy document that would provide clarity They would give him confidence regarding all that he had heard and been taught regarding the life and ministry of this remarkable individual, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. Now, we don't know who Theophilus actually was. I suppose, I I assume that he was a real person. Now, some have theorized that he's a composite character, that he's actually not an individual but a composite. And those who suggest this possibility observe that his name means literally lover of God, Theophilos, God lover, lover of God. And on that basis, they theorize that his name is a literary device to denote all who love God. Maybe, maybe not. 
Luke's goal and purpose in writing is certainly reflected in, in his account of the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. And of course, Luke also is the author of the Acts of the Apostles, which he apparently considered to be a kind of sequel to his gospel. In the opening paragraph of the first chapter of Acts, he continued, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Let me just pause there for just a moment. All that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, Luke is saying that the ministry of Jesus hasn't ended. While he was on the earth, it was just the beginning of all that he began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, some people are surprised when they hear that Jesus was, in fact, around for 40 days after uh, the resurrection from the dead. He was here for over a month, almost six weeks. And if you're among them, you may be left wondering, well, why was he still here? What was he doing all of that time? And if you don't get those questions answered, you might conclude that he was just stuck hanging out for a while because, well, he kind of wrapped things up a bit earlier than anticipated, and his reservation he had made for his flight out of Israel was still six weeks off. <laughs> you know. So, so what was he doing? Why? Let's look again at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. For 40 days, he appeared only to his followers. Isn't that interesting? There's no mention of him appearing to anyone else but his followers. He's moving among them. He's answering their questions. He's calming their fears. He's uh, teaching them about himself. He's, you know, opening their minds to understand the Scriptures, preparing them for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and all of that is so important, isn't it? Imagine if you had been there. Consider how important it was for Thomas, one of the twelve. He rather unfairly has gained the label Doubting Thomas because he said he wouldn't believe Jesus was raised from the dead unless he was able to see and feel the nail marks in his hands and the spear wound in his side. And during those 40 days, Jesus appeared to Thomas, granted him that opportunity. And Thomas' conclusion came out of his mouth rather abruptly. He said, my Lord and my God. He understood in that moment who Jesus really is. Consider also how important it was for Peter. After he had confidently declared to Jesus that though everyone else might fall away, everyone else might abandon him, he, Peter, never would. And yet on the night when Jesus was arrested, Peter found himself denying on three separate occasions that he had ever even known him as Jesus predicted he would. And so Jesus appears to Peter and three times reassures him by telling him that he had important work for him to do in leading and shepherding the church, the flock of God. 
And we shouldn't forget Mary, his mother, not to mention his brothers and sisters. We're not given a description of Mary's reaction to the news of her son's resurrection from the dead. Here's what we do know, we, and we knew it from Luke chapter 2, that when she observed her son suffering and dying, a sword pierced her soul. And it's interesting, isn't it, that most of the artistic images that we have of Mary depict her weeping, mourning, looking sorrowful. And there is that, isn't there? The heart of a mother broken over the death of her son. But I would suggest to you that we should not remember her in only that way. Because when her crucified and risen son appeared to her alive and in the flesh, Mary must have been dancing and singing for joy. If there were tears, there were tears of joy. And we could probably go on and just surmise some things about a few others, couldn't we? But see, Jesus never wasted a moment. There was purpose in every second of each of those 40 days. He lingered in order to prove to his followers that he really was risen from the dead and to prepare them for the coming of the Holy Spirit. When we combine Luke's two accounts, one at the end of his gospel and the other in the first chapter of Acts, a fuller narrative emerges. Let's begin with Acts 1 at verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus rolled his eyeballs. No, he didn't. It says, he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And don't we want to know those details about what's coming? We have, we just, we're kind of, some people are kind of just even obsessed with that. But here's what Jesus says. Here's what you ought to be doing. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In verses 4 to 5, Jesus gives them a command, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait there in the city. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. A couple observations. We often look at Acts 1.8 and we say, here's a... Here's a uh, another version of the Great Commission. But notice with me that there's no command there. Rather, it's a prediction. Most of us have heard that little expression, oh, the places you will go. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. Oh, the places you will go. Places you never anticipated going. Because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to be compelled to share the gospel. You can say a lot of things about the effect of the Holy Spirit when he comes into a person's life. The first one ought to be that we have a passion to share the gospel. And then in verse 6, they ask him this question, Lord, 
will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? From the fact that the one who asked the question is not named, we can assume that this question was probably on all of their minds. Even after all that he had taught them, all that had taken place, they were still stuck in their traditional expectations of what Messiah would do. They were expecting Messiah to be a political and military leader. And so he answers them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, places you don't want to go, places you've never been. He's saying in so many words, my Father is in charge of all of that. He's in charge of times. He's in charge of seasons. He's in charge of the beginning and the end. As for you, here's the next big thing. This is what should occupy your minds when the Spirit is poured out on you. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be preoccupied with advancing the gospel outward from Jerusalem to all the places I will send you. And then at this point in the narrative, we need to cut away for continuity, for, for sequence to Luke 24, beginning at verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany. Now we know from where the ascension took place, Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Bethany is the hometown, if you recall, of Jesus' close friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. It was the setting for many other significant events over the three years of Jesus' public ministry as well. So arriving there, Luke says that Jesus lifted up his hands and began blessing them, and that it was while he was blessing them that he ascended into heaven. And just imagine that. Their final glimpse of their Savior, their Master, was with his hands extended, not this time to be nailed again to a cross, but rather instead this time to bless them with comfort with peace, with hope, with joy. So now we go back again to Acts 1, beginning at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Say cloud. Cloud. Cloud took took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way, say, in the same way. In the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Verse 9 tells us that Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. It would have been no less remarkable had it happened Today, no wonder then that the disciples were just left there, mouths hanging open, gazing into heaven, just gazing, being amazed. He left in a decisive, memorable 
manner, didn't he? He didn't just walk away. He didn't just appear to them with decreasing frequency until one day they looked around and somebody said, where's Jesus? I miss him. Where'd he go? Instead, he employed that moment as he had every moment purposefully. And now please make note of the promise given by the angels, the men in white robes. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In the same way. In what way? In a cloud. In Acts 1 verse 12, Luke simply notes that the disciples then returned to Jerusalem But in Luke 24, 53, he tells us that they worshipped him, that that moment became an occasion of worship, and then they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, were continually in the temple together blessing God, so that their response to all that they had seen and heard on that day was worship, it was praise, it was a hunger to be together, it was great joy. Well, that's the story of the ascension, but what does it mean now let's consider the meaning of his ascension. I realized as I was preparing this message that I could probably spend the better part of a year teaching on the meaning of his ascension into heaven and not exhaust the subject. But I don't have a year. I have a little less than half an hour. I want to suggest four words that are important for our thinking about this. The first word is validation. Validation. You may recall from reading the Gospels that Jesus' favorite description of himself was son of man. He was always referring to himself as the son of man. The promise of the angels that as the disciples had seen Jesus ascend into heaven in a cloud, that he would come back in the same manner, validated Jesus claimed to be one like a son of man whom the prophet Daniel saw in his vision recorded in Daniel 7, where the prophet wrote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the what? Clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And in fact, it was this very claim of Jesus that gave the Jewish Sanhedrin the confession they needed in order to sentence Jesus to death. You may recall that when he stood trial before them, Caiaphas, the high priest, said to him directly, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You said so, brother. You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest understanding what Jesus was saying, tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves 
death. Jesus, in saying you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, was saying that he is the one to whom will be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him, an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that will not be destroyed. Then go with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 16. Paul's teaching to the Thessalonians regarding what we call the rapture of the church, his description of that event. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. It's going to be noisy. (laughs) Noisy enough to wake the dead. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. There it is again. To meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, the second word is vindication. Vindication. So Jesus was not, of course, the only one to have been raised from the dead, nor was he even the first. That distinction goes to Lazarus, whom Jesus raised. And if you think about it long enough, you might along the way, come to a realization that without the ascension, Christ's resurrection would have remained on a par with that of Lazarus, who we are given to assume eventually died again. But the ascension of Jesus to God's right hand is God's demonstration of his acceptance, his approval of all that Christ accomplished. The Father received the Son back with joy because Jesus accomplished perfectly all the commands of his Father. This is precisely what Peter told the crowd in Jerusalem after the event of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost. By the way, Pentecost, the word means 50th, every year the 50th day after Passover. So if Jesus was on earth 40 days after Passover, which is when he was crucified, then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was just a week and a half, roughly, after his ascension into heaven. Listen to what Peter said on that day. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, that is David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he was poured out, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, 
But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110, verse 1. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Vindication. Vindication. The third word is completion. Completion. You'll recall that in the final moment on the cross, before Jesus gave up his spirit, and I I speak to this a lot, don't I? He cried out, it is finished. It is finished. Tetelestai, paid in full, completed, accomplished. And as we saw last week, what what Jesus declared is that everything that was necessary for our salvation, everything that was necessary for our sins to be forgiven, everything that was necessary uh, for our reconciliation with God, everything that was necessary for us to receive the gift of eternal life was completed completely. Will you say those two words with me? Completed completely. In the opening section of the New Testament book of Hebrews, the writer really spans the redemptive career of Christ in just three verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, where does this language come from, this this language of sitting down? Why is it significant? Go with me to chapter 10 of Hebrews. And I love this passage. I never stop being amazed at what the writer teaches here. He presents Jesus as the high priest who offers the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. Uh, You may see on your calendar every year those Hebrew words, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies behind the veil and, and there he would offer sacrifice for the sins of all the people. And that's the picture that that the writer of Hebrews wants us to see. But not only is he the high priest offering the sacrifice, but he himself is the sacrifice, remarkably. And I, I shared with you, I think, a week or two ago that I had read, and I can't remember who it was I read, but he described this moment He said, it's as if Jesus, our high priest, went into the Holy of Holies, went into the presence of God, robed in all of the high priestly regalia. And arriving there behind the veil then, took it all off and laid himself down on the altar as the sacrifice 
Now listen to Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 11. And every priest stands, say stands. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Well, there's a revelation, isn't there? I remember reading someone who who said that on the days of the high sacrifices in Jerusalem, the blood would run in the streets ankle deep. It would flow down from the Temple Mount and run through the streets ankle deep. Now imagine how much blood that represents. How many animals were sacrificed. But it also went on daily. So every priest stands, say stands, daily, he says, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You say, well, what's, what's with all of that? What's, what's with the Old Testament sacrificial system? It can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, say for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, say sat down, at the right hand of God. Work completed. No more standing, no more repeated sacrifices, no more useless sacrifices. One effectual sacrifice for all sin, for all time. Work completed, he sat down waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. There's Psalm 110.1 again. For if or for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Listen now. No additional sacrifice needed. Nothing to add. No acts of righteousness. No feigned penitence. No more work to be done. Jesus, our high priest, our sacrifice, sat down. The fourth word is exaltation. In John 17, in what has been called Jesus' high priestly prayer, at verses 3 to 4, we read him saying this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In verse 3, Jesus speaks of the completion or the accomplishment of his work of redemption. And in verse 4, he anticipates and prays for his exaltation with all the glory restored that he knew and enjoyed before the world came into being. And when the risen, ascended, and victorious Christ sat down at the right hand of God, it meant his exaltation. Alistair Begg describes Jesus' ascension into heaven in terms of his upward mobility. And he observes the Uh, that in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, Christ's mobility is all downward until the cross. 
until the cross. And from there, it's all upward. Here's how Paul put it. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. All worship and praise in heaven and earth belong to him as well. So what's he doing now? What's he doing now? What does one do when one's seated on a throne at the right hand of God? Does he buckle his seatbelt? I mean, what happens there? I want to quickly give you three aspects of his present ministry, and then I'm done. The Bible tells us, first of all, that he is presently proclaiming his grace. Proclaiming his grace. You might say, how's he doing that? Remember what I showed you about Luke saying, that I'm giving you an orderly account of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. It's just the beginning. It's still ongoing. So he's proclaiming his grace by his spirit in and through the church. The, the proclamation of the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, just explodes. It just detonates. Why? Because in the person of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus Christ is universalized into the heart and life of every believer. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Sometimes you hear people say, well, boy, wouldn't it be great if Jesus was still here? But the truth is he is still here. He lives in you. He lives in me who have trusted in him. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. And just before his ascension into heaven, Jesus promised, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But in an additional indication of God's vindication of Jesus' finished work, The promised Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost and the mission of the gospel was immediately ignited and exponentially multiplied. Remember on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were added to the church, believed in Jesus. And we read at verse 47, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And it's continued to to increase around the globe, to every ethnicity, to every people group, every tribe, every tongue, whether women or children, men, as Jesus directs the expansion and progress of his mission in the world through the church. Jesus is still proclaiming his grace. And he's doing it through you, through me, through his church. 
So he's proclaiming his grace. And second, he's preparing our place. He's preparing our place. As Jesus prepared his disciples in the upper room for what was about to happen in the hours that, that lay ahead of them, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again. There's a promise. And will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Cool, right? I mean, how many of you are like HGTV junkies? Come on, Marcy, raise your hand. It's like, it's like the moment I leave the room. Right? But can you imagine the one who knows you best, who loves you most, who understands you perfectly, thoroughly, preparing a place that is custom designed just for you? No need for realtors, architects, carpenters, plumbers, electricians, interior designers, or landscapers. The one who spoke the universe into being knows your personal tastes, and he knows what will delight you most. He's hard at work on it right now. Awesome? Awesome. Jesus added, and you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, it's, it's only by personal faith in Jesus Christ that, that any of us have any claim on heaven or hope for heaven. He's proclaiming his grace, preparing our place, and finally he's pleading our case. He's pleading our case. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you sin? No? Again, I'll wait. You know, do you? <laughs> those of you who answered admitted that you do, and those of you who were unwilling to say so admitted that you do as well because you lied by your silence. Uh, <laughs> we all do, all the time, in a thousand different ways. So here's the good news. In First John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Remember that word propitiation means the atoning sacrifice. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. John's saying, I hope you won't sin. I know you will. I hope it's with, incre- uh, with decreasing frequency and intensity. But here are two points of encouragement. When you sin, and you will, Jesus is your advocate with the Father. He is your defense attorney. And second, Jesus is the propitiation, the sacrifice that sets us right with God. He's the propitiation for our sins, that once for all sacrifice. So when you sin, it's as if Jesus says, 
I died for that sin, Father. She's one of mine. Her debt is paid in full. And and when you do it again, he says it again. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And every sin is covered by the blood of Christ. Listen to what Hebrews 7.25 tells us. He's able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Maybe you've been in that place that I've been in on too many occasions when I say, Lord, there, there I went again. I did it again. How can you forgive me? How can you keep on forgiving me? When I do the same thing, I'm in the same rut. I do the same, I'm in the same patterns over and over and over. How, how can you forgive me? <laughs> it's because he's the propitiation. It's because he's the advocate. Hebrews 7.25, he's able, say able, once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. So the question here is, are we living with the confidence that Jesus is actually able, not only able but willing, to save you? His willingness was demonstrated, by the way, at the cross, was it not? But don't miss what this verse wants to tell you. He is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He made final payment in full once and for all on the cross for all of your failure to meet his standard. The entire debt of your sin is paid for. He saved you once and for all. He's able to save you forever. Why? Because that's what he lives for. He lives forever with one purpose, to intercede on your behalf with God. What does it mean that he intercedes? It means that he's praying for you. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, pleading your case. Jesus is always talking to God the Father about you. Funny thing is, God the Father never gets tired of it. Why? Because if you transferred your trust from your religion, your morality to Christ alone, then God has adopted you as his very own. You became one of his children and he never gets tired, good or bad, of hearing about his kids. And that brings us to our present hope. I watched a sermon this past week from Alistair Begg about this very topic. And Alistair Begg imagines that as the disciples stood there watching Jesus go into heaven, as they were gazing, reflecting on what they had just seen, what it meant, One of them spontaneously sang, He is Lord. And another antiphonally joined in and said, He is Lord. And another one on the other side of the group said, He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. And another one reflecting on the prophecies said, Every knee shall bow. 
Every tongue confess. And then they all joined in. That Jesus Christ is Lord. Now it's a, a fanciful imagination, of course. I'm kind of sure it didn't happen just that way. But it's the right connection, isn't it? Isn't it right on target? Our present hope, our hope for this life and the next is secure because of one thing, and that is that Jesus Christ is Lord. By the angels, his identity as eternal God is the one worthy to be given everlasting dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him is validated. He has been vindicated by his Father for having perfectly and completely completed the work he was sent to accomplish. For, <clears throat> excuse me, first by raising him from the dead and then by seating him at his right hand. And in seating him at his right hand, God the Almighty One has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, I could go on, couldn't I? But, but I hope this morning you've gotten at least a brief glimpse of his glory and his authority that he exercises on behalf of those who are his own. So you and I can rest. We can enter into his rest. Resting in his love, his mercy, his grace, his divine authority, and trust him with our lives now and forever. Because he is, he is the resurrected, ascended, exalted, and glorified Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we marvel at these things. We marvel at these things. We're amazed. If we're not amazed, we're not thinking. We're not engaged. Lord, I pray that you would impress on us that because Christ completely completed the work that you gave him to do and sat down, that we can trust him with our lives, we can trust him with our eternity, and may we do so. I pray, Lord, for those who today may be considering trusting you, putting their faith in you, or that you would grant them that gift of faith that leads to life. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.